All right, good morning, church. So good to be with you. Like uh, Pastor Bob said, we're bringing our our study in the book of Romans to a close. We're in Romans chapter 16. I have to admit that I'm a bit sad because for the last several months, I've been able to open up the text and spend extended time with Paul. And it's almost as if you begin by saying, Paul, what do you have for me? What do you have for me? And then what do you have for Illuminate? Uh, I have a little a little uh, space there at Phoenix Seminary that uh, I, I use every Monday. And pretty much from dawn till dusk, that's where I'm at. They essentially feed me under the door. They don't let me out until the work is done. And, uh, and I want to say by the grace of the God, but by the grace of God, we are uh, able to have some extra space that we've been telling you about available to us beginning this week. Because we haven't had offices, Phoenix Seminary has been gracious enough to allow us to use some of their, their room. But beginning this week, our upstairs tenant is moving out, and we're moving in. Yeah. We've told you. And by the way, hey, let me say this too. Let me say this too. I, I really, I want to say thank you. Uh, there's a lot of, of, of reasons to be thankful for you. But specifically in this moment, I want to thank you for your financial stewardship and your financial faithfulness to these ministries because that is what has allowed us to have that tenant move out without collecting. You know, we're going to lose their rent, but that's okay. We need the space. We need the space for what God is doing up here. So we're going to have offices up there as well as some classrooms, some space for our students. Our student ministry continues to grow. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you on behalf of all the people that are ministered to uh, here at the church. Just thank you. Thank you for that. So that'll be happening this week. Give us a few weeks to build it out, and then uh, we'll, we'll introduce a grand opening to you. So if you got your Bibles, we are in Romans chapter 16. And I think maybe the best way to begin the end of our study is to give an overview of what's happened so far. Essentially what Paul does in chapters one, two, and three is he lays the groundwork. He explains why we need the gospel. In doing so, he explains the true human condition and he begins in the most amazing way. It's so good. In chapter one, essentially he says, everyone on the planet is without excuse for not acknowledging some supernatural divine being. You say, well, why is that the case? Well, Paul goes on to say, The fingerprints of God are absolutely everywhere. All you have to do is look at nature. And in nature, what do you see? Design, order, incredible complexity. The more complicated the design, the more intelligent the designer. It's been interesting over the last decade to see what has, in my opinion, if you'll allow me to say this, the extinction of Darwinian evolution And I think this comes in part because questions are being asked that haven't been asked before. Things are being revealed, massive holes in these theories that are now being brought to light. And it has become obvious that to think that we are here as a result of chance takes more faith than to believe we are here from an intelligent designer. Along with this, just within the last five years, it's been very interesting, and a lot of this actually has to do with online debates. The new atheists, their voices are becoming quieter and softer. As science continues to 
progressed, it's just been remarkable to see evidence for God on display in ways that it has never been seen before. In other words, what's happening is the Christian faith is being taken into the public arena and it is not being found as wanting. It, it is being seen more and more as providing answers to questions. So this question still remains. Why do people reject God? I mean, if the evidence of God is all around us, then why do people reject him? Well, Paul goes on to explain this, and it's quite brilliant, informative, and factual, because what he says is people are suppressing the truth of God. To suppress something is to hold it down, but it's kind of like that, that basketball or that beach ball that you try to hold underwater, and what happens? As soon as you let it go, boom, it rises to the surface. That's what truth is. <laughs> That's what truth does. God has baked into the fabric of reality this thing called truth. The Bible says you reap what you sow. This is true even in your ideology. The ultimate test of any worldview is its livability. And so Paul says people suppress the truth about God in their unrighteousness. Did you catch that? In other words, it's the idea that if there is a God, he probably has something to say about how you and I should live our lives. Probably has, probably has a moral guide as a compass that we should all be following. Now, especially here in the West, especially here in America, we know that one of the great all-time virtues within American society is autonomy. It's the idea that nobody's gonna tell me how to live my life. Live and let live. Live out your truth. Well, again, the ultimate test of any worldview is its livability, and so now you're seeing the outworking of all of these different worldviews that suppress the knowledge of God. And by the way, then, you know what Paul does? This is incredibly insightful. He says there are practical outworkings of this that you'll see in society as well. And one of the practical outworkings of denying God is this, sexual depravity. Do we have some of that going on in the world? Okay, this is, this text is 2,000 years old and it speaks to modern times. It's, it's telling you exactly what's happening. You deny God, and you know what the, the first thing man will do? He's gonna have a hard time keeping his pants on, right? Isn't, isn't, that the, isn't that the case? More so, Paul says, because man is a sinner, God is angry. Now, you may be here this morning, you're like, okay, I'm out, I'm out. I don't like the idea that God would be angry. I don't want an angry God. I'm here to tell you that you actually do. You want an angry God, and here's why. Think of the alternative. To worship and serve a God that turns a blind eye to all of the evil things that happen on this planet, what kind of God is that? You see, that is a God devoid of justice. You have a sense of justice within you because when you see wrong, you want to make it right. There's something with you. And especially when wrong is done to people who seem innocent, there's something that rises up within you and you say, what? They need to pay. <laughs> they shouldn't get away with that. Now, here's the deal. Since evil makes God angry, we are all under the anger of God because to a greater or lesser degree, we all do evil. You and I are the reason why this planet is jacked up. Very famously, uh, G.K. Chesterfield was, Chesterton was asked 
responded to a local newspaper article in his time many, many years ago and put forth this simple question. What is wrong with the world today? And he gave a two-word answer. I am, period. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. There's an incredible amount of self-awareness there. Most of us don't have it. Because evil is what the other person does, not me. I'm basically good. And by the way, that's the prevailing worldview, right? Is that in the end, you know what? If there is a God, you know, my good will outweigh my bad. I'm not that bad. And certainly the gates of heaven or whatever entrance there is will be thrown open to me. And that is totally foreign to the Bible. If that was the case, there would be no reason for Jesus. So do you see why Paul begins with, here's the deal. Let me give you the true state of mankind. You've got some pretty dark thoughts. Now, you may not always act on them, but what if, see, Jesus lays this principle down in, 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 uh, in, in the greatest sermon ever, ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, what would you do if you knew you could get away with it, with no one looking? Now we're talking about what's really inside your heart. So Paul, it's fundamental for Paul to lay this down because then all of a sudden everybody is awakened, so to speak, and you're like, okay. The problem is within. What are we gonna do about that? Well, then that's Romans chapters three and four where Paul says that Jesus came to the earth, lived a perfect life. The wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died. He took the wage that was due you upon himself, gets nailed to the cross, gives up his life. This is why Jesus' blood was shed. The life of a creature is in its blood. He sheds his blood. He dies. He pays the wage that was due from you, takes it on himself. The cross is the place where the justice of God, the anger of God, if you will, and the mercy of God collide. And what comes forth is forgiveness. That's chapters three and four. Then in chapter five, he says, you know, we're all in this position because we all have the same forefather, Adam. And when Adam sinned, we all inherited his disposition. My kids love hot sauce. You know why? Because I raised them on hot sauce. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, kids take on the characteristics of their parents. Well, so do we. Unfortunately, we took on the characteristic of Adam and that we're all sinners. And Paul says, but see, you come to Christ and you have a new... You ready for it? Identity. That's not an important word for our time. Bible speaks to it. Romans chapter five. You wanna know what your identity is? Your identity is now in Christ Jesus. He gives you life. He tells you how life is to be lived. Since he is the co-author, creator, sustainer of all life, he knows what's best for you. John 10.10. 10. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What does that mean? Aren't we all living? Yeah, we're all living, but we're, all not, we're not all experiencing an abundant life. He's talking about the quality of life here and now. And in addition to that, he's talking about eternal life and life to come. Jesus provides all of that. That's your identity. He shapes everything about you. And then you get into chapters six, seven, and eight, and Paul says, the, the secret to living the Christian life is to tune into the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God enables you emboldens you, equips you to live the life that Jesus calls you to live. Then you get into chapters 9, 10, and 11, and there's this intense conversation 
The thing that theologians often wrestle with, it's like, well, God is sovereign. If you look back over the nation of Israel's history, Paul uses a couple of examples and he says, God was doing all of these things and nothing was gonna thwart his plan. Nothing could stop it. He's sovereign over everything. There's never a moment in time where God goes, oh, I didn't see that coming. Now that's a surprise, never happens with God. But then one could ask, well, now wait a minute. If God is sovereign and everything is in his hands, then I shouldn't be held responsible for anything. Well, you flip the page, you get to chapter 10, and Paul says, you're responsible. (laughs) As far as you're concerned, you have freedom. You have freedom. And so there's this wrestling match that goes on. When some people get too heavy on the sovereignty of God, Paul says, now let's temper that a little bit and just know that you will be held responsible for your decisions in this life. That's chapters 9, 10, 11. Then you get chapter 12, and essentially Paul says, now, now that we've laid down some really rich theology, here's the so what. You should be different. In light of what God has done for you, you should be completely and totally transformed. Romans chapter 12, verse one. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We were all created to worship. When some remote, undiscovered tribe is suddenly discovered in some part of the world, you know what they find about that tribe? They worship. Is that interesting? And primarily, what do they worship? Nature. Kind of like what Paul said in Romans chapter one. That's general revelation, creation. We're created to worship. You're gonna worship something. Do not be conformed to this world because the world will want you to worship it. So you gotta be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, putting the good into practice, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In light of who you are, and in light of the work that God has done through Jesus on your behalf, Christian, you're a new creation in Christ. You've been completely transformed. Question, have you? Have you been transformed? He goes on to say that there are two primary ways in which you'll know. Your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and your ability to step into their world and recognize, I don't wanna do anything that would upend your faith. That's the conversation between strong Christians and weak Christians. And then secondly, he says you will serve those around you. Then you get to chapter 16. And I've always viewed Paul as this this dude who's like in the arena with a sword in hand and he's got blood on it, you know, and he's got like blood on his tunic and he's like waging war and slaying demons and anything that comes at him, he's taking new ground for the kingdom. Just as from one church planter to another, you gotta bow down to the guy, man. He's just a beast. Then you read chapter 16 and you, you just, you hear the man's heart. And essentially what he tells you is, I am nothing without the people in the Christian community surrounding me, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's on his mind and heart as he ends the book. He's like, now, I'm gonna get real personal and I'm gonna show some Christian affection 
to the people I love who have co-labored with me in ministry. Chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's a servant of the church at Century, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her with whatever she needs. Help her, church. She has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So the word greet appears 19 times alongside 33 names. 24 of those names are people who live in Rome. Paul has met on his journeys, missionary journeys, but he hasn't been to Rome. But as he's been out and about, he's made these friendships, he's met these brothers and sisters, and knowing that they live in Rome, as he concludes this letter to the church in Rome, he's like, now I got some special people in mind that I wanna address. And now, if you're a reader in the first century, this is an extremely unusual thing that you've just encountered, because back in the day, it was very uncommon to address women. And what does Paul do? Now, I gotta make this list of people I wanna thank. And who's at the top? The women. And what's really interesting about this is what he mentions about them. You know, of all the things that could be said about his appreciation for these ladies, you know what he says? Read it, look what he says. What does he say about them? They're bold. I love that. He says, these women were courageous. I tell you, when a church is filled with courageous women, talk about the gates of hell not prevailing. Paul says, I'll tell you this, they risked their lives. The, the women were the ones who risked their lives. He uses the word neck. And, and I think in the last half of the first century, this is quite literal, because it wasn't cool to be a Christian under Nero your head would be separated from your body. These women risked their necks. They were bold, they were courageous, and, and something else too. He says, all the Gentile churches thank them. Why is that? Because the women opened up their homes. The women showed boldness and they also showed hospitality, which was what allowed the churches to spread in the first century AD. Greet my beloved Epinetus who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. I would love to see this spiritual lineage because if you look at what happened in Asia, Paul reaches this guy and then all of a sudden this guy begins to spread the gospel throughout Asia. You never forget the people you lead to Christ, especially early on. Greet Mary, she's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, I think this is probably a married couple. They were my kinsmen and they were with me in prison. This is, they were next to me, man. We were like cellmates in chains. They're well known to the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. That is to say, they came to faith before Paul did. Some of these people that we're about to read, not only did they serve time for their faith in Christ, but when they were released, they went right back to doing ministry. Greet Ampliitis, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my sister Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. This is insane. Paul was a Jew. Before he met Christ, 
Gentiles were dirty. These are all Gentiles. These are Greek names. These are Greek Gentiles. And Paul's like, I mean, Herodian, think of that. The root is Herod, like the family of Herod. Paul says, these are my brothers and sisters now. Look, when you open your life up to being used by Jesus Christ, you have no idea the journey that you will be on and the things that God will bring into your life and the blessings you will receive and how your mind and heart are open to things that you would otherwise never have imagined before. And Paul says, Herodian, my kinsman. Then this is really interesting. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. You know, remember Greek mythology, the story of Narcissus? Well, this is a secular family name. Narcissus is the name of a, a flower. You might know it uh, better by that. But the story of, of Narcissus, Narcissus was a young man who was beautiful. So beautiful that as he stared in his reflection in the water, he could not look away. He was enamored with himself. So long did he stare at his reflection that he became rooted in the ground. You know, the literal meaning of the root word narcissus, you know what it is? You know what it is? Stupid. <laughs> he, he was made stupid by himself. Without raising hands. <laughs> you are your own worst enemy. Especially if you are successful or highly gifted. Like if you're really good at what you do, uh-oh, here comes the temptation to pride. And you begin to look within and stare and become fixated and become stupid. These names prove that Paul was faithful to what God called him to do to reach the Gentiles. Greet those workers in the Lord. This is kind of cute, Trephenia and Tryphosa. These names literally mean dainty and petite. Probably two twin girls, perhaps. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Man, that's a good thing, man. You want to be a hard worker. Work hard for the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. According to Mark's gospel, it appears that Rufus' father, uh, Simon of Cyrene, helped Jesus carry his cross. Also, his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I love this because here's Paul. He's, you know, he's, he's gay. Paul's pretty salty, man. You read some of his stuff, and man, this guy's bringing some heat. And he tells you he's bringing it. And he says, you know, you know, there's these ladies in the church. God love them. They're like moms to me. There is, okay, undoubtedly, there is a role that women play that men cannot do nearly as well. And that is the role of a mom who nurtures, okay? And Paul says, I, I wanna call these ladies out for their ability to do just that. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And now for the single Christian man's favorite verse, greet one another with a holy kiss. What does it mean? A holy kiss is one that is pure. Many years ago, 30 years ago, maybe more, 
the first church I pastored in, I'm a young guy, and there was this super sweet elderly lady. Every time I passed by her, she grabbed me by the arm and pulled me close. She's like this tall. She reaches up, both hands around my neck, pulls me closer to her, and she plants one on my cheek. Okay, the thing about this sweet lady is that she loved her lipstick, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And the first time this happened, like I'm walking around talking to everybody, wearing her shade, you know what I'm saying? And the person who calls me out is my wife, Jill. She's like, could you be more discreet? I'm like, don't worry, she's not my type. I'm, I like him from this century, you know? And so she's like, <laughs> helping me out. And uh, isn't that the beautiful thing about the body of Christ? I lost my mom a few years ago. I have lots of moms. I never really knew my grandma. I've got lots of grandmas. You know, and I'll tell you what, I don't like losing them because they're my biggest cheerleaders. They're my biggest fans. You know, nobody loves you like your mom. And I love this because Paul says, we appreciate him. We're gonna acknowledge him. These women, they were like mothers to me. And I needed that. The world is a very lonely place. America, perhaps more so than most. The number one reason why people attend church is not because of the preacher or the worship. The number one reason why people attend church is because they have relationships. Brothers and sisters in Christ that form community. Far and away. The number one reason why people will attempt to attend a church is because they are asked. So here's the thing. You have people in your life. See, the problem is not their unwillingness to come. The problem is the unwillingness to give an invitation. That's the problem. Really, the problem isn't so much with the person. The problem is right here. That's why, you know, when Jesus prays, He makes a very specific prayer. It's just a really good one, very true. He says, there's plenty of work to be done. Jesus doesn't say, God, would you just give us more work? It's not the prayer. What does he say? God, give us more what? Laborers. Well, there's plenty of work to do. It's just the doggone laborers. Too far and few between. Listen to how Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother take care, taking care of her own children. For more on this, come back in a, a couple of weeks on Mother's Day. See, that's the great thing about Mother's Day. This place will be packed. It ain't that way on Father's Day, dudes. <laughs> Why? Nursing, nurture, taking care. I don't know if there's a, a, a more affectionate word picture. So being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, in other words, we're bringing you a message and you need to hear this message, but along with the message, we're bringing you our very lives. We're gonna be in relationship with one another. This is why we introduced Pastor Chris last week. You know, you can tell what's important to a church by where they put their money. Uh, we're bringing somebody on specifically to help people get connected. We did a campaign as we were growing bigger, smaller, deeper. The bigger God grows us, the more intentional we have to be on becoming smaller. It's connectedness, it's relational. But we, bring, we, we, we brought to you our own selves because you had become very dear to us. This is this warm heart that Paul has, and it's an example for us all. The world can be very cold. The church should be very warm. Well, Paul is a very good pastor, so he can't leave without just warning you. It's like when you send your kids off to college and you're kind of like, oh, but you need to know about this, 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 and this. Oh, and one more thing. Watch out for this. Be careful of this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Church, avoid these people. That's great, because if you get your doctrine wrong, you're gonna get your application wrong. Verse 18, for such persons, they don't serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own appetites, in primarily pride, ego, the opportunity to be heard, to feel like they are somebody, positions of power and authority, and they're smooth talkers. A lot of times, it's not someone that brings you the truth, it's the person that is most persuasive in the discussion. Flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. These are the wolves in sheep's clothing, and to the congregation, Paul says, you guys stay away. To leadership, he gives a different message. To leadership, he says, you guys better deal with them. How do you deal with the wolf? How do you deal with the wolf? Question, do you negotiate with the wolf? No, you remove them. You remove them. And if they refuse to be removed, you put them down. For your obedience is known to all. Great compliment to these men and women. Reputation for godliness is far and wide. There are these certain verses that you read, and as a pastor, you're like, God, may it be said of us. So that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and be innocent to what is evil. That's a great statement for our, our world today because it's like we've be, we, we become so familiar with what is evil. Nobody knows what's good anymore. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet Keep the power play in perspective. Satan is an already defeated foe. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, and it is with you. Jesus' grace is with you. Uh, you are saved by grace, you are sustained by grace, and when you fall, it is grace that offers forgiveness. Final greetings, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason, and so Sipiter, my kinsman. I, Tertius, wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. So this is typical in, in, to the church in Thessalonica. Paul says, I got this guy who's dictating for me, sweet brother, travels. He picks up the pen. I talk. He writes things down. But then Paul also adds, he says, now, toward the end of the letter, I'm picking up the pen because I want you to know this letter is legitimate. So I'm writing to you now in my own handwriting. I'm not just signing the name Paul. That could be Photoshopped. But what I'm doing is I'm gonna give you a big old paragraph in my own hand, concluding words from me. You know this letter is genuine, church. I think that's most likely what he does next. Now, there's only one way to end uh, a book uh, like this, and that is packed with theology and that is to end it with doxology. Theology always leads to doxology. That is to stay an understanding of who God is, 
leads you to praise God for who he is. Theology always leads to doxology. I appreciate uh, Wayne Grudem in his update to systematic theology. Somehow that brother took a book that was this thick and made it this thick. And that's how rich the Bible is. That's how good and gifted he is at bringing these insights. But at the end of the chapter, he concludes with a hymn, which is brilliant and like super biblical. It's like, here's the theology. Now we're gonna end with the doxology. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, I just have to pause here. The Greek word for strengthen, we get our English word prop, to be able to make something stand. Who is the one that's able to make you stand? He's talking about Jesus. According to my gospel, that's the content, and the preaching of Jesus Christ, that's the delivery. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And Paul can't help but end with an amen. What is this mystery that he's talking about? First Peter chapter one, verse 10 through 11 explains it. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what time, person, spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Here's what he's saying. There was this great mystery that took place. Like, what was the Messiah gonna do? Where would he be from? How are we gonna identify him? So men were moved by the Spirit of God to record these things. Like, for example, the prophets would learn, well, the Messiah is gonna be born in Bethlehem. So they put the pen down and then they're like, Bethlehem, what's going on with that? That's like a super little podunk town. Okay, that's one piece of the puzzle. Raised in Nazareth, Nazareth, backwater town. That's kind of a, then Isaiah prophesies and talks, this is that the Messiah is going to die. Okay, that's a new piece of information. That's a puzzle piece. Where are we gonna put that one in? The Spirit of God in them was speaking, and Peter said they were trying to figure it all out. And that's how I've described it before. They had the puzzle pieces, but they didn't have the face on the box, and then bam, Jesus comes. And all of a sudden, you and I know they were all talking about Jesus. All of these prophecies point forward to Jesus. We're talking dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies specifically fulfilled in life cards, because there's nothing like the Bible. No other piece of literature comes close just in terms of fulfilled prophecy. Fact check it. We have it. In light of all of this richness, Paul busts out and prays to God. Christian, so should you. And if you're not, you probably don't have a full understanding of who you are and how good God has been to you to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins. Paul ends with this crescendo like, amen. And so should we. No better way to end Romans than to reflect on the love of God manifested through Jesus Christ. So that's what we're gonna do. For the next few minutes, give you some time just to reflect and to allow the spirit of God to speak to you this is something that Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. If you're not a Christian, you can let this pass by you. But this is really a sacred event for Christians to participate in. Jesus commanded it. 
do this until I return. Because human nature is such that we often forget the things that are most important in life. So Jesus says, don't forget. So Father, an incredible gift is the Apostle Paul in the words of Romans. God, it, it brings understanding, it, it moves our hearts, ultimately it draws us closer to you. In the end is praise. Father, as we enter into this time of reflection and remembrance, I pray that your spirit would just speak loudly and, and minister to every heart as, as only you can do, knowing what is in our hearts. For your glory we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. During Passover, Jesus takes the bread and with his disciples, he breaks it. He says, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat the bread, do so and remember me. And he takes the cup. He says, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink, do so and remember. Father, our prayer is simple and from the heart. And it's just an expression of gratitude. We're thankful now, and we look forward to that time in eternity where we will be with you face to face, fully realizing the hope that we had on this planet. Until, Jesus, you come for us again. We wanna lift you up. We wanna make you known. And God's people said,